Welcome to episode 94 of the Walking Closer podcast, and this is part four of a series I have titled Challenging Perspectives, and the perspective that I am wanting to challenge is yours. I, uh, I'm wanting to challenge your perspective, uh, the perspective you have when it comes to the Bible and how you interpret what you are reading. Essentially, what I'm doing is sharing with you those things that, that have challenged my own perspective, things I have learned uh, when it comes to the text, and those things are primarily cultural in nature. So what I am doing here is presenting some things about the culture uh, these texts were written about that have, well, challenged me to set aside my own cultural lens and imagine more plausible, I think, scenarios as I interpret the text. And the last episode, I talked a bit about the honor-shame society, this framework in which they operated and how understanding this helps to shed more light on what's going on in the text. And today I want to follow the same vein, but I want to dive a little into the family dynamic uh, so we can get a little taste of maybe how rooted the honor-shame notions were. Um, so uh, let's start with the uh, the family dynamic and the relationship between a boy and his mother. So boys grew up being, let's say, extremely close with their mothers in a, in a very literal way. And understanding this, let's talk about a young woman whose marriage contract has been fulfilled. In other words, the marriage has been consummated, and she has moved into her husband's home, maybe even a compound where you know his father and, and mother and maybe his brothers are located, other family members are there. And she is no longer with her own family. She is now learning to navigate this new family dynamic with women she has not known her whole life. And now it's time for her to find her new place among this new family. Now, at first, she's not fully accepted into the husband's family. Um, say walls are up. People are a little unsure. And while they may have welcomed the marriage there are still some unsaid things just below the surface, and everyone's feeling out one another. See, this is a woman who is still under the authority of her father as well as her husband, and so her loyalties are divided. You know, she is a daughter of another man, uh, but yet she's married to, say, their son, their brother, their uncle, um, and the question is, can she be trusted to act in a way that brings honor to this family? So there is some tension that has to be ironed out. And this all can change, and it will, if she has a son. Specifically, a son, okay? Because when a woman has a son in this culture, he ties her now to this new family in new ways. See, because having a son shifts loyalties more towards the husband's family. Now remember, this is a patriarchal society, and males, well, mean power. And so the more males you have in a family, potentially the more powerful the family can be. 
uh, and the more power the patriarch will have. So the son was the mother's way in. He was her ticket, okay? Having a son would potentially ease some of the tension and allow for some some of the walls to be removed and would allow the mother to become maybe more settled and make it easier for her to find her place. And this would this would bring a certain level of security and comfort to to the mom. So of course she's going to treat her son as like a prize, right? Uh, maybe we would say it was like she would she would spoil her son. You can imagine how this would create a close bond between the mother and and the son. So sons were very valuable, and it gives you a little little idea uh, of to as to why maybe uh, women desired to have not just a child but desired to have a son. Okay. Now to further understand this, consider that. It was the woman who raised the child, the children, up to puberty, the male and female. The boy would have been essentially, should we say, pampered among all the women in their area with, with, with little, if not any, male role model until, until puberty. So when the boy reached puberty, though, everything changes, right? And now he's going to be forced into the man's world where he is not going to just get what he wants. He's not immediately, you know, top dog. He's not going to be necessarily treated like the prize that uh, his mother viewed him as. And so now he is going to be forced into a man's world. There's the and there's there's no rite of passage uh, or bar mitzvah um, to mark this occasion. Um, This would be like a hard, cold thrust into a realm uh, that was, well, very foreign, not your own. And uh, so the boy now is going to be raised by his father, whose, well, purpose is going to be to turn this young boy into what they would consider an honorable man, who will play a key role in maintaining the family's honor and possibly adding to it if, if possible. So in order to do this, the patriarch, that is the father, must be able to impose his will on his sons and be able to count on their loyalty to him. And the more sons a father had, the more power the father had. And this this was important because each family stood on its own and needed to be strong to be able to hold their own against other families. And the father would need to be able to depend on his sons to uphold the family's honor in whatever way was necessary, even if that meant seeking revenge. And so it was the father's responsibility to teach the boys how to be honorable. And if a father failed to do this, then the son, well, could, this could bring shame and dishonor upon the father and the family and the family name. So what would you imagine that would be the primary way in which this would be done? What would the father use? How would the father go about doing this, right? Uh, raising up a boy to become what they perceived as an honorable man. Well, it was done through physical discipline. Now, this is where it gets interesting uh, to me. Have you, have you ever noticed how there are all these verses in the Bible that talk about disciplining a son, but nothing seems to be mentioned about the daughter? Have you ever noticed that? 
Now, you may not have, especially in our modern translations, it's harder to see because most often these words for sons um, are translated as children. So this is gender-neutral, all-inclusive language that's being used there. But I suggest that sometimes in, in doing so, we end up missing some of this information. We end up missing some of the picture uh, that was actually being painted. And, it, and, and especially in relation to what we're talking about here with raising up a son in an honor-shame society. But in the original, the words are most oftentimes uh, used, uh, have to do with males, and the context has to do with males. And there are some occasions where a word is used, and it can be translated either male or female, and people will argue for that. But for the most part, I, I suggest that these verses are talking about a father disciplining his son. Now, why is that? Like, do the girls just get a free ride? Well, not necessarily. Um, and, and and it's because we don't we don't get a whole lot of uh, windows into what it was like to raise a daughter, but we we do get a bigger picture of what it was like to raise a son uh, in the text, and I believe that that's what this text is talking about, especially in relation to honor, being honorable, being obedient, and what that would have been perceived as in this culture. So I'm suggesting to you that these verses have to do with this very thing I'm talking about, the father's responsibility to raise his son to be an honorable man. All right, so let's just read a few of these verses. Um, let's start with Proverbs thirteen twenty four, which says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs twenty two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Okay, here's another one. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is the classic verse to talk about, talk about discipline while well, spanking your kids. Uh, Proverbs twenty three thirteen: Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And then there are even these other verses that talk about, what about this one concerning stoning a son? Deuteronomy 21, 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them. And verse 21, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear. Uh, and this is just a sampling of these verses and these texts that talk about disciplining uh, a child, but specifically a son, okay? And most oftentimes, it's the father disciplining the son. And so I suggest to you that we should be reading these verses, at least in part, through this honor-shame lens and through this discipline the fathers are, are hoping uh, will result in their sons bringing honor to them. Okay, They were molding and shaping sons to be just like them. They were training their sons to be concerned about honor and shame and to have a desire to live according to the honor code because if they were not concerned about honor, then that alone would bring shame upon them all. And so the father is raising his son through physical discipline, to be obedient to him because through that obedience, the son would be like the father and become an honorable man. So 
Yeah, obedience was the name of the game. And if a son was obedient, the father could rely upon the son's loyalty. Okay? And we, we actually have pictures of some of this in the Old Testament stories. Like, for instance, consider Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is actually a good example of what an obedient, honorable son looked like. Now, why do I say this? Well, think about the time Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Consider the fact that Isaac was old enough to resist and run away from his father, but he didn't. Now, I don't know how old Isaac was. I'm not not sure, but uh, some estimates range between 18 and 37. Okay, I realize that's that's a pretty wide gap, but regardless, think about this. He was old enough to be strong enough to carry enough wood for a burnt sacrifice and to carry that wood up a mountain. That's a lot of wood, okay? He didn't just have a couple little twigs here. But also think about this. Once Isaac realized what was going on, he was willing to be tied up. He didn't run. You see, by submitting and not running, he did not act shameful, but showed himself to be honorable. Furthermore, if Abraham would have actually killed Isaac, Isaac would have been seen as someone who died in an honorable way. He died an honorable death because he did not run, but submitted. This is what every father would want their sons to aspire to be. And they prepared them for this through physical discipline. And it was it was all about suffering and silence, even, even if that suffering leads to death, because accepting death and not running away was the honorable thing to do, and anything else was considered a disgrace. And so you would have the option to die in honor or live in disgrace. Now, take this story and fast forward to the death of of Jesus. Now read the account of the death of Jesus in light of these things that I've mentioned. From some perspectives, it would seem that Jesus dies a shameful death. See, to die on a cross was a shameful thing, and it seemed to some like Jesus was a failure. So what happened, right? I mean, to die on a to die the way that he did, it would appear Like, it was all for nothing. And you could imagine what his disciples were thinking, the things that were running through their minds about what happened. However, in all of this, in the picture that seems to be very shameless, because you got to remember, when we read the Gospel accounts and we read about the death of Jesus, we're reading it after the fact. Like, we know the end of the story. Okay, but those who lived through it, it was much different. They had a different perspective of things. They are in the midst of something that appears to be quite shameful. Now, that being said, I suggest that there was someone um, within these circumstances who saw through all of this, at least to some degree, okay? They, They witnessed something. Now, we'll get to that here in a moment, but remember, Throughout the trial of Jesus, he didn't say much, did he? He didn't fight back. 
He didn't run away. Kind of reminds you of Isaac. See, that is a glimpse of honor that could have easily been overlooked to some degree. But there's a glimpse of honor. But when Jesus is on the cross, remember there was a centurion who saw how he breathed his last breath. And he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now, this phrase, son of God, can also be translated the son of a God. And I don't think that the centurion is acknowledging Jesus uh, as the son of the Jewish God. He wasn't acknowledging Jehovah and Jesus as the Christ or anything like that. I think the centurion is essentially saying here, wow, surely this man was the son of a God. He's, it's a claim of deity. It's a claim of connecting. I mean, the centurion may have had in his mind some sort of like demigod of some sort. So I don't think the centurion is acknowledging Jesus was the son of the Jewish God. It's the centurion's way of noting that there was something unique and different about Jesus in the way he died. Now remember, he says, you know, be, when seeing how Jesus breathed his last breath, then he says this, okay? So there's something about the way that Jesus died that drove the centurion to acknowledge something, to note something that was unique and different about Jesus. Like he had qualities that were divine because he, he suffered unlike anyone else he had seen suffer. And remember... And this guy would have seen many people suffer, okay? Probably even at, at his own hand. So how did Jesus suffer? Well, think about what would have caused the centurion to say this. What what about these scenarios that would have sparked something within the centurion to acknowledge something, something so noble and honorable to claim deity, okay? Jesus suffered quietly, and that's an honorable thing. He didn't say much on the cross. He suffered honorably. And in this was the centurion's way of noting this. And with this statement, which is found in Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Mark paints a picture of Jesus dying an honorable death, like, like a cultural hero. Now, at the time, most would have not seen it this way. But after the fact, Mark helps to clear up any confusion about Jesus' honor. You see, it would have seemed like Jesus was a failure. And for him to die on a cross in such a shameful way, okay? From all points and perspectives, it would appear like Jesus lived a shameful life, did not live according to the honor, honor code even. Um, but yet, he doesn't stay in the grave. So there's a conundrum. If God raised this man up from the grave, obviously there was something about this man that was worthy of honor, because God would definitely not resurrect a man who was shameful and allow him to live but yet he dies this shameful death. How do we reconcile this? How do we make sense of this? And therein lies, I believe, a part of what the Gospels are doing and laying out this picture, retelling, if you will, helping people understand 
really what happened, because what it appeared had happened, actually, actually, there was more to the story. And now we're going to clear this up and we're going to lay this out for people. And that's one of the things that Mark does. It helps to clear up any confusion about Jesus and how he died and the honor, the honor with which he lived and died and the honor, the honor that was ascribed to him by God, not only through his life, but ultimately in the resurrection, right? In the resurrection, demonstrating that indeed Jesus was the Christ, the ultimate, the ultimate honor, you know, that could be ascribed to man. So, yeah, there is a little taste into how this honor-shame approach was woven into everyday life and life purpose. And and listen, there is so much more we could talk about and unpack just in the areas that I have talked about in this episode. But there is there's still a lot that I am personally trying to sit with and marinate in so that I can better understand. You know, this is for my, my own, to better my own understanding. But, but yeah, um, hopefully this was palatable and it's given you a little taste of maybe what we need to unpack and understand about the cultural context of the Bible. So there it is, part four, challenging perspectives and... Um, there will be there will be a part five so stay tuned uh, for that episode 94 here it is grace and peace talk to you soon